Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. One of the perks of my job is that I get to surround myself with people in the wellness industry who inspire me. And then I get to like hang out with them, pick their brains on the podcast, and sometimes even call them my friend. It means that these podcast interviews never, ever feel like work. It's more like having a super nerdy chat over a cup of tea. Today's guest is one of those friends. She's a highly experienced naturopath and sports nutritionist. She's also a much loved lecturer and speaker. So loved, in fact, that when I recently posted a pic of us both together at a conference on Instagram stories, I received a bunch of replies that were all along the lines of, oh my God, she was my favorite lecturer at college. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) She is known as one of the go-to practitioners in our industry when it comes to understanding the needs of active people and athletes. But you don't need to be at an elite level in order to benefit from her wisdom and knowledge. So even if you're training to run your first five kilometers or wanting to get into gym training, keep listening because there'll be so many gold nuggets in here for you. Oh, and if you are an elite athlete, pay extra attention because this human has information to share with you that could literally be game changing. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, the amazing Kira Sutherland. Oh my God, that's like my favorite intro I've ever heard. (laughs) <laughs> excellent we aim to please I love, it. I love it oh I feel so special now yeah hopefully I have information <laughs> no pressure all right Kira tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about sports nutrition how did you end up there oh how did I end up there um I was that sporty kid that did you know you name the sport I would do it Um, I probably should have focused on one sport and been more elite, but that wasn't kind of my goal in life. So I played every sport possible at a pretty good level. And then, oh my gosh, becoming a naturopath. You know, I started studying regular nutrition. Sorry, that that did not roll off my mouth. Dietetics nutrition in the US. And then I took a break from university for a while. And then when I went back, I had been converted to study naturopathy and nutrition, and that was awesome. And then I was getting into, as an adult, I was really missing sport because a lot of us, you know, once we get past 20, 22, we're we're not in team sport anymore. We don't have the money to go skiing or whatever it is. And and I was really missing sport. So in my mid-20s, I got into triathlon, which was kind of booming at the time. And it still is, but this is a little while ago now. And 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 I was the naturopath inside of a gym. So it just kind of all fell together that I, you know, was always working with fit, trying to get fit, healthy people. And then the triathlon world gets pretty obsessive about what they're doing. And it kind of just rolled from there. Yeah. So these have always been your people. Yeah. Yeah, they have. They have always been my people. You know, I have lots of extreme athlete friends, lots of kind of crazy adventure friends, but also people that, you know, water polo players to skiers to, you know, just runners and whatever. Yeah. I come, my dad's super fit. So I guess it always comes from, it's a bit of, yeah, it's inherited. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you started out studying dietetics and then naturopathy and nutrition. So look, What's the difference between oh. a sport? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I always get this there. question. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You can do that. You can do that. What's the difference between a sports dietitian and what you do as a sports naturopath? Right. So, look, um, I actually work with a lot of dietitians. I've studied under dietitians. They have amazing knowledge. Um, they just study quite differently to what we do. We're both university trained. Um, We didn't used to be university trained, but we have been now for almost the last 20 years. Um, To then be a sports nutritionist, a dietitian would usually go and do a four-day course. The the first level of sports dietetics is a four-day course. It used to be done at the Australian Institute of Sport. I'm not actually sure where that's being done now because they're kind of changing how they do things at the AIS. Um, 
but you have to be a dietitian to go do that course. And then I think they have a second level um, to, to do more sports nutrition. So that entry wasn't available for me because I wasn't a dietitian. And so I did my postgrad study through the International Olympic Committee, which was like a, it was a graduate diploma in sports nutrition. And there's a few more of those now available these days. So really the style of sports nutrition I was taught is dietetic sports nutrition, because that's pretty much what sports nutrition is. It's number crunching. It's looking at macros. It's looking at the body. You're looking at the body like a car or, you know, a machine and how to fuel it to its optimum performance. So then I guess the way I deal with it is I will always have my rose-colored glasses of naturopathy or holistic nutrition on. And so for me, I just have a slightly different bent to how I approach it kind of through that naturopathic lens. But I'm still very much practicing under what would be sports dietetics principles because they're, that's the science. Yeah, and that's like the more evidence-based approach, like in that sort of pure sense of the word. Yeah, it's absolutely evidence-based. There's incredible research being done in exercise physiology and sports nutrition around the world. And, you know, I'm always reading those papers and doing more study that way. And, And yeah, and then, yeah, you just have that little filter of doing it a little bit differently, or I use herbal medicine, or I may use more supplements than other people, unless of course you're dealing with drug tested athletes, and then there's different supplement rules altogether. But yeah, I just have that kind of wider frame looking at it as food is medicine. And I'm not saying that dietitians don't do that, but we just have a slightly different angle to that. Yeah, I think even in the non-sporting world, the dietetics and and holistic nutrition or naturopathy we've just got very different ways of looking at the world sometimes yeah yeah absolutely they you know they're incredible number crunchers macro counters you know they're very good at working in you know they're geniuses at working in a hospital giving people you know ng tubes you know when you you know, needs extra help with your nutrition or you've just had your bowel resected and, you know, what can you absorb? Um, and, and they're great one-on-one. I, I have quite a few friends that are dietitians that are just amazing. We just tend to focus more on, you know, we're looking at nutrition to help actual ailments a lot of the time, more so than just focusing on eating and calories and and there's dietitians that do a lot more than that so I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm dissing it but yeah yeah and that's that's the thing I think in the last sort of decade or so there's been I don't know in the non-sports world at least there's been a bit of an us and them mentality but I do feel like there's a few more of us sort of meeting in the middle now yeah yeah, it's it's it's, drawing on both yeah absolutely we're getting a lot closer together in how we approach things. We're a lot more evidence-based over the last 10 or 20 years, and they're looking more at food as medicine, and they've really come to, you know, some of the great research on the digestive system is coming out of some Australian universities looking at the microbiome. And and so with the evidence coming out on the digestive system and vagus nerve and all that, they're coming to the party that we've already been hosting, I guess, <laughs> even though we didn't, we didn't have all the evidence to show it, but we had hundreds of years of this is, this is our empirical knowledge around the digestive system and the nervous system and its connection and the immune system. So the evidence is backing it up. So we are getting a lot closer, a lot closer. Whereas I remember 15 years ago, meeting up with some um, dietitians and one of, you know, once they get to know you, they'll ask you lots of questions. And I remember them, one of them calling me saying, my client is asking for a thyroid diet. And I don't know what that means. You know, yeah. it's just not there. We're much more into food sensitivities and, and yeah, looking at organs and systems and, and nutritionally. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different ways to get to those macros that you spoke of as well. So even if, you know, people from different paradigms are looking at which macros you need to be hitting, like that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be recommending the same foods, right? No, no. We, and we, we're much, yeah, it's very true. Where do I even go with that question? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it depends. I mean, I have a, a, you know, 
we're a lot, as I said, we're a lot more focused on food sensitivity. We're a lot more scared around dairy and, and gluten and we're not scared, but we're more cautious, let me say. Um, and yeah, sometimes we will look at higher, you know, we've been in love with fats for a long time. Um, you know, good, healthy fats and it, yeah. Ooh. What what kind of answer do you want for that question? I'm, I'm not sure where I need to go there. <laughs> I think that's good. I yeah. like that. It's it's kind of reading like a Tinder profile here. The notes I've just taken, which is like in love with fats, cautious around dairy, <laughs> blue eyes. No, no, hazel, hazel. Long walks dance. on the beach. <laughs> Pina coladas. No, I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all um. What is it now? Margaritas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. Lot too much sugar for me. Too much. Um, Okay, let's talk about some of the supplements that we see uh, being recommended on both sides of this slightly blurred imaginary fence. So, I know from personal experience, like having you know, I I have a family member who was playing um, rugby league at an elite level. And they were stuffing him full of protein powder and he got really snotty and had trouble breathing on the pitch when he was running and all of that sort of stuff. And when I said to him, I think it's the dairy, he said the coach didn't give us an option. They said we have to have this protein powder or or stick it. So, yeah, and that that was a few years ago. It was less than 10 years ago though. That, that I that that happened because I remember we were up in Byron at the time we've only been up here nine years yep so yes talk to me about uh the different sorts of supplements that people are taking and and what could be good or bad about those yeah so protein powder is always a huge question you know and there is a plethora of research on protein powders and um whether you're an elite athlete or you know someone just trying to get fit Protein needs are always looked at, you know, as the macro goes for, you know, carbs are just as important. But with athletes, everyone gets really hyper-focused on protein, sometimes over-focused when it's unnecessary. But, you know, the more exercise you do, the higher your protein needs probably go up. Um, Men's protein needs potentially are slightly higher than women's, but we don't have quite enough research on that to be to completely know um teenagers protein needs go up as well and so with athletes there you are always striving for a certain amount of protein that is something i calculate for all of my clients depending on their we do it off of kilograms of body weight but um with protein powders you know people get a little obsessed with it and they're like oh, i have to have my protein powder after training i have to do this and they're and they're often more focused on the protein when they actually should be focused on their carbohydrates because the sport they're doing is also using up their stored carbohydrates which are which is referred to as glycogen and so sometimes people do themselves a disservice of hyper focusing on that protein powder right after training when they also need carbohydrates but as far as protein powders go you know, in research, whey protein powder, which is a dairy source, does come out at the top for muscle building, recovery. Like it, it actually does have better results than any other protein powder. So that is why a lot of times people are always given whey protein first. But as naturopaths nutritionists, we would also then look at, hey, does this person actually cope with dairy or lactose? You know, whey protein is actually really low lactose. There's only about 3%. But some of us are sensitive to whey, not just the lactose. So even though whey is king, there are a lot of other protein powders that I would use if somebody is starting to have breathing trouble because that is definitely going to impede their uh, performance. Yeah, and their digestion. Yeah. And it could be affecting people's guts as well, couldn't it? And not just the lactose. Does whey have casein in it as well? No, whey is – they've taken it out. They've actually separated – you know, curds and whey is whey and casein. You know, little Miss Muffet? Yeah. (laughs) She was separating her her whey from her curds, which is casein. Yeah. Yep. And just yeah. in case you needed to know that history lesson. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, so when, when you're having a whey protein isolate, that's fine. 
but there are still going to be some people who just don't tolerate it. Yeah. Oh, in a food sensitivity test, I come out quite highly sensitive to whey. Um, some whey protein powders are actually blended with digestive enzymes, a lactase enzyme that makes it not lactase enzyme, but it, you know something that helps b- break down lactase to make it more digestible. But you know, there's a ton of other beautiful protein powders out there, and if you're going to get five percent less muscle growth does it really matter if you're going to feel better on a different protein powder like i love the you know if people are omnivores i'm a huge fan of collagen protein powders and they definitely don't have the same results and outcomes in clinical trials at this point but it's still a good amount of protein and let me back up the reason people often use protein powders is because they're looking to increase their protein macros without heavily increasing calories at the same time, because most of the time in nature, protein comes with a lot of fat. Like if you're looking at meat and, and things like that, you've got a lot of saturated fat or just extra calories that people maybe don't want when they're wanting their higher protein intake, which is why people depend on those um, protein powders or you know, it's just easy in a recovery smoothie or something like that. So there's a lot of drivers for why people use protein powders. Yeah. 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 And it sounds like it might be a little bit misguided as well, because like you said, um, having some carbs after training is just as important, but is anyone talking about this? No, and they should be. But the problem is everybody's carb phobic right? Carbs are not yes. the enemy. They're not. Oh my God, I'm going to get fat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the optimum, and this is the thing I love about sports nutrition, and I use sports nutrition and weight loss all the time. The best and safest time to eat carbohydrates without fear of getting fat is to eat your carbs around your training. That's the, uh, you know, when we exercise, we almost kind of, this is going to sound unclinical, but we kind of potentize our insulin or our cells to insulin. So so that the insulin, which helps get food into the cells, actually does a better job post-training. We're kind of metabolically superheroes at that point. And we've stimulated an enzyme called glycogen synthase, which helps get make more glycogen. And your glycogen, again, is just your stored carbs. So, so you're like super potent and ready to make carbohydrate stores out of the food you eat rather than body fat right after you finish training. And especially for that first one to two hours, although really that first hour is where the biggest magic happens. So, you know, you're, you know, the biggest carb meal of the day where you should have your most starchy carb should actually be in the meal right after training. Yeah. That's just so different to everything that people have been saying for the last decade, really. Well, and then you get all the people that decide to do intermittent fasting and then they train fasted when they shouldn't (gasps) be training fasted. And then my least favorite thing is when they then continue to fast beyond exercising. So then you know, they go another two or three hours thinking they're having this incredible fat burning carryover effect. You know, you are probably burning a bit more fat if you don't eat, but you're losing this just beautiful, you know, metabolic window of opportunity. And we do know in research that you don't make as much glycogen from a meal eaten two hours after training than you would if you ate it right after training. You don't make as great of muscle, you know, your your muscle's have been broken down when you exercise, you know, they've gone into what's known as a catabolic state. And the way to turn anabolic into build is to eat food. So by skipping eating after training, you're just, you're suppressing the immune system. You're letting cortisol stay higher. And I know you, you're, you know, with your whole adrenal focus and exhaustion, Mm -hmm. we, Mm -hmm. you know, exercise jams up your cortisol because it's supposed to, but the way to turn cortisol down after exercise is to eat and especially to eat carbohydrates. So, you know, you're doing your poor little adrenals a disservice. Uh Oh my goodness. There's so many rabbit holes we could go down right now. Holy, holy cow. Okay. Um, Can you explain out here for the cheap seats? Why do we need this little guy called glycogen so much? So glycogen is like your fuel tank. Like if you want to go to analogies and you're a car, that's your fuel tank that you live off of during the day. I mean, we also use our body fat stores, but we use glycogen and glycogen is stored 
in your muscles and it's also stored in your liver and your liver glycogen is kind of what you fuel. Well, it's your backup fuel tank. It's not as big and it's what you use, especially while you're asleep. So when you wake up in the morning, your liver glycogen is actually quite low. You're more dependent on your muscle glycogen when you exercise, especially if you fast and then train, but you need, you need, it's just your fuel tank, your brain, unless you're doing really low carb or ketogenic diets, your brain is basically fueling off of glucose, which, which your body gets from either the food you eat or by accessing your glycogen stores. Cause glycogen stores are just a bunch of glucose molecules shoved together basically. Yeah. Yeah. And when we hit the wall during training, is that us running out of glycogen? Well, it's pretty hard to totally run out of glycogen, but yes, as we get lower glycogen, we're going to feel a lot worse. And there are theories around brain fatigue during exercise or central, they call it central fatigue. I think they call it central fatigue where, um, they're talking about it's actually your brain getting pissed off. It's not getting, this is really technical the way I want to explain this, but <laughs> your brain's kind of getting pissed off and tired because it's not getting enough fuel. So there's this, yeah, as you lose glycogen, exercise feels harder. It, it you know, your brain gets more tired. You potentially um, could get sloppier and make more um errors or not have great form if you're maybe lifting weights and that can always be more dangerous for injury um what was the question <laughs> or if you may if you became sloppier and made more errors if you were doing something also that in, that required you to not make errors you know like skiing or something that becomes yep. like super Car driving. important as well Car driving. Yep. yeah 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 right okay yeah. so it's you know it's this beautiful fuel tank and we you know the food you eat right after training, I promise, unless you eat some massive amount of food, it is going to go to repairing your muscles, the protein will, and the carbohydrate is going to get turned into glycogen. It is not going to get turned into your muffin tops. It's just not. <laughs> so what's the perfect post-training meal slash snack? What do you have? Well, the, you know, the ratios, if you're doing like aerobic you know, like running or biking or, you know, kind of aerobic style exercise, or um, you would look at a ratio of three parts carb or four parts carb to one part protein. So for women, I often say a three to one ratio for men, I'll say a four to one ratio. Um, so, you know, this is some beautiful toast and veggies, like wh whether you're gluten-free or not, you know, some beautiful toast, some eggs, some spinach and mushrooms. And what drives me crazy is when I meet all these people that do like boot camps and they train really hard. And then I find out they're just eating eggs and, and spinach after training. And it's just, it's just not enough carb. You that's, it's your time to have your potato, your sweet potato, your bread, your rice, you know, the stuff we all love that everyone gets nervous to have is perfect right after training. Frittatas, um, porridge, but you need to add some extra protein in there. Uh, buckwheat pancakes can be great as long as you're not putting too much sugar and syrup on them. <laughs> smoothies, smooth, you know, beautiful smoothies with great fruit, whether it's, you know, banana or mango or berries and your milk of choice, whatever, if you're going to use, you know, cow milk or almond milk or whatever. Um, and then adding in some protein powder to make sure those ratios are in the right amount. Those are, those are probably all my big go-to ah, meals. Nice. Yeah. If you nice. were doing, let me just say this though. If you're doing really heavy weights, if you're doing a lot of strength training, you are actually churning through your glycogen as well because high intensity training, or if you're doing training of an anaerobic nature, which is about above 60 to 65% of your max output, um, that is absolutely churning through your carbohydrate as well because that's glycogen dependent or carbohydrate dependent sport. And a lot of people after real strength training, again, over-focus on the protein and forget the carb. And that's actually, carb is super important there as well. Although yeah. I do find sometimes after strength training, people prefer a two to one ratio, two parts carb, one part protein, which means more protein and a little bit less carb. Yeah. yeah. And that's for men and women. Yeah. 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 Now 
I love actually the quote that's on your website that says oh. women are not small men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's let's talk about us as women, how are our needs different and what are the traps that we fall into when we're comparing ourselves yeah. to active blokes? Yeah. Well, the big problem is or has been is we've been left out a lot of the research, you know, 60, 70% of sports nutrition research is done on men, not women. And then over the years and decades, we've just extrapolated the results from these 80 kilogram, you know, college age male students who are willing to be hurt in clinical trials. And we've extrapolated the information for exercising women and we're not different. You know, there's huge parts of us that, that are similar, but a lot, you know, there's so much about us that is different. So over the last five to seven years, there's thankfully been a really big push in clinical research to actually look at how we're not small men and how we might be responding differently and have different needs. So there's not quite enough research for there to be, you know, huge statements yet about what we should and should be doing, but there's a lot of great suggestions that I use that have some evidence. I'm just going to say they have some evidence, but it's not deep, deep evidence yet. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff around, especially how we train to our cycles you know, and looking at us as two different beings, depending on are you in the first half of your menstrual cycle or the second half of your menstrual cycle. Um, and also the other big thing is how we respond to stress, you know, and, and how we are potentially so much more sensitive to cortisol and how that then affects how we gain and lose weight, what our hormones do if they're under stress for too long. You know, there's su- such a flow on, and I know a lot of the things you focus on, Jules, are, are, are around, you know, women and their hormones. But yeah, how we fuel ourselves with exercise has massive impact on it. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do see a lot of women who've got burnout and oh. ad- adrenal issues who somewhere in the last few years of, of, of their history have been really overtraining or running yep. marathons or, or yep. I shouldn't say overtraining because it makes it sound bad. Like some people, you know, like they, they've got a goal and they're, they're looking to achieve that goal or, yep. or they might be, you know, in semi-professional or competitive sports. But, yep. yeah, they're, they're training hard. They're, they're doing lots of cardio and yeah, it has definitely fueled the burnout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and we've also, you know, and then we've got intermittent fasting and fasted training and all these things. You know, there's a lot of great research on intermittent fasting and there's research on why you should train fasted. But if you actually go and you read that research in sport on training fasted, you don't do it seven days a week in high intensity sessions. You train fasted gently on a recovery day of training where you're doing a walk or a slow jog or light weights. You're not supposed to fast and train seven days a week doing boot camp and, and, you know, really high intensity exercise. That's not what the research says. And I think the problem is we take, we extrapolate research into these crazy, we overdo everything, you know, and it's like intermittent Mm. fasting, you know, Oh, do only an eight hour window of eating, do only a six hour window of eating. Oh, only eating four hours. And it's like, it's, you know, (laughs) God, we just, we take everything to the ninth degree, you know, and, and we hurt ourselves in the process, you know, and it's like intermittent fasting, all the research again, mainly done on men. And Mm -hmm. and you, you meet all these women who are like, Oh, my husband and I started intermittent fasting and we're both doing it really well. The exact same. He's lost 20 kilos and I've lost three. Yes. And, and then keto. I hear the same yeah. thing with keto. Yep. And then they go, what's wrong with me? What have I done wrong? What's broken in my body? And it's like, your body's not broken. You're just doing a style of eating that isn't working for your female body, but it is working for your partner's male body. Mm. And, and we don't our bodies are so smart. We just, I just wish we would remember we can't trick our bodies, right? They're, they're, <laughs> it will outsmart us every freaking time. And, and like, 
Yeah. Just the, you know, now all the fasting websites and all the big doctors and fasting are like, oh, that's right. Women maybe should only fast for 12 hours because you're more sensitive than men. But here's all of our programs that are about eight hour fasting. It drives me crazy because then they just kind of chunk all the women into this one clump and go, oh, you guys just fast for 12 hours then. But there's no big explanation. So is there anyone that you see client-wise that you highly recommend IF for? Like, do you have people that you're like, yep, yep, you can, you can do intermittent fasting? Look, I'm not against intermittent fasting. I'm just against doing it poorly for your body type. So there are, there are body types that I don't suggest intermittent fasting for, but they're not the body types that are trying to lose weight anyway. Mm. So, um, but you know, the way I would do, you know, if someone really wants to try intermittent fasting, I'll let them do it. But again, I'm looking at a 12 hour window. The problem is most of us eat far too often and for far too long in the day. You know, we wake up, we have breakfast and then we graze all day through till 9 PM sitting in front of the TV. And I'm a huge fan of eating three meals a day no snacks unless you need it due to your exercise output. You know, there's, we've got sold on this, eat all the time, have five small meals, have, you know, three meals and two snacks. Not everybody needs that. So I'm a fan of that, you know, three to four hour window between eating to allow a lot of, you know, to allow your body to kind of relax and not be busy in the digestive system all the time. And there's, you know, all this onflow of hormones and, and things when, when you wait three to five hours. Yeah. So yeah, I can't say I'm against intermittent fasting. I'm just in, against stupid intermittent fasting. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the quote for the podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just right against, there. I'm against the extreme <laughs> way that just especially depletes women and their adrenals and their, oh, you know, they're having, you know, one of my big things with intermittent fasting with women from all the research I can read about how our cortisol is highest in the morning and that it should be dropping off during the day. We actually, our insulin works better in the morning as well. It works really well. They've measured insulin and how well it does its job. And it, it's great until about two o'clock in the afternoon, and then it starts petering off in its ability. And we also know that the digestive system has a circadian rhythm, just like we have our sleep circadian rhythm. And our digestive system, we know, functions better with routine and giving it food at the same time every day. So I'm a fan of eating by kind of 9 a.m. at the latest for most people, and then finishing eating earlier. I'm, I'm more in favor of that style of intermittent fasting than I am people waking up and fasting the whole morning and then they're jamming in, you know, coffee because that's considered not breaking the fast. And they're just, they're tired and wired. And then, yeah, they're just going yeah. against their body's actual rhythms. Our body's rhythm actually wants us eating more in the mornings and at lunch. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about whether you think coffee is breaking the fast or not. I have thoughts on this. Oh, I, <laughs> I want to know, know your yours. thoughts. Oh, oh, go first. Go first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you want me first? I don't think. I, I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> I, I think it is breaking the fast. I think we're just looking, cherry picking evidence. Yeah. We're just looking for a reason to say that it's not so that we can have it because that'll get us through the fast without being hungry. And if you're using coffee to get you through the fast without being hungry, is this even the right thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. Look, deep down, I think black, and I'm talking just black coffee, not a fat black with MCT or coconut oil or all that other, you know, heavy cream that people put in truly black coffee I think it's maybe not breaking the fast, but I don't think it's always a great idea. Can I, can I sit on the mm. fence on that one? Yeah, go on. I love yeah. a bit of fence sitting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there could be a place for it. You know, we know, uh, you know, in sports nutrition, having coffee before training or having caffeine before training, we know assists in increased fat burning. We know it actually makes the workout feel less 
difficult. Like it actually, your what's known as your rate of perceived exertion goes down. So coming from mm. a sports nutrition per, point of view, I see a use of caffeine or coffee, but I'm talking a black coffee, not not the big skinny latte with five sugars and caramel, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, I think what people deem a coffee is often a sugary milk with a hit of caffeine, you know? So I, I think I think we're all in love with coffee, but we do need to be more cautious with it than we are. Absolutely. It's the most abused drug in the world, they say. Mm. If we're talking about caffeine being used to change that, what was it, the, per- the perceived rate of exertion during yep. a workout? Yep. Can we talk about pre-workouts? Oh, pre- like pre-workout um, supplements? Mm. Mm-hmm. The ones that are really high in caffeine that no one realises are high in caffeine. They oh just think that it makes them feel really good. It makes them feel good because you're basically on half, half natural amphetamines. <laughs> Like it's a hit. So those can often come with multiple forms of caffeine and people don't realize it. And again, those can be adrenally very depleting over time. And people then wonder why they kind of slump after using them for quite a while. But uh, pre-workout supplements will also often have, so they'll have a couple forms of caffeine. They will often have something that dilates your blood vessels. So contains or is a precursor to create nitric oxide. So you have a blood vessel dilation. So you actually get better blood flow, which means you get better fuel to your muscles. And there will often be an acid buffer in those that will, you know, will, you know, when we, when we're working out really hard and we're getting, you know, we feel that lactic acid buildup. It's not actually just lactic acid that we're feeling. We're feeling it's a change with, oh my God, it's biochemically, it's about hydrogen ions and stuff like that, but I won't go there. It's just, uh, you're becoming more acidic and that is what mm, makes you feel so terrible. So you will have supplements in there that are acid buffers to allow you to train longer before having that sensation. So that's basically what pre-workouts are often made of. Sometimes they'll even have creatine in them and creatine we all think of are you all right on my monologue here? Yeah, go, okay. keep going. <laughs> I'm hearing what you're saying, but all I'm actually hearing is chemical shit storm. But anyway, yeah, keep, it can keep going. be. It can be. Look, a lot of it can be natural, but there's there can be a lot of synthetic stuff in there. Creatine is, let's leave creatine for a different conversation, actually, but creatine can be in there to help with workout fueling because creatine, everyone thinks of it for muscle building, but it's actually um, the creatine monohydrate gets turned into phosphocreatine in the body and phosphocreatine helps create ATP, which is your unit of energy at really high intensities. So at like 95 to 100% of your max output. So weights to exhaustion, sprinting as hard as you can, you're using your phosphate system of energy production, which creatine assists with. I hope that made sense. Um, Mm. So those, you know, it actually doesn't matter if you take creatine before or after training. It's just about having good creatine stores. But yeah, the the pre-workouts, I think, really need to be chosen for specific workouts. It's not an everyday thing because it is just, you know, slowly going to throw out that HPA axis or however you want me to say it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that old chestnut. Yeah. I have had I have had clients who it's it's they, it's like they're reliant. I was going to say addictive, oh, they're totally but that's reliant. not the right they're word. Di- yeah, no, they can't addictive. work out without it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this workout without my pre-workout. Like, yeah. what can I have instead? Well, it's the same with coffee. So whether you're choosing a pre-workout supplement, which is like coffee times five, <laughs> or you're yep. having coffee, it's all the same thing. It's that looking for that hit, um, you know, uh, that neurotransmitter hit that you're getting like from caffeine, if we're talking about, you know, it's what does it allow adenosine reuptake inhibitor or whatever. It, oh, I'm getting too sciencey here. Um you know, it makes us feel great, but sometimes then we're pushing through when we shouldn't be pushing through and we should be listening to our body and the signals it's sending us about how we actually feel before we undertake a workout. 
So when you're trying to get a client off these pre-workouts, what do you what do you do with them? Um, we really just have that wise discussion about I, I wean them off of them um, because they don't. It's like alcohol; they don't want to go cold turkey. But we mm. pick the two workouts of the day where it, you know the week of the week where it might actually be of the best benefit. And then you know if I'm looking at a lot of adrenal issues anyway, we just I would move them on to adaptogen herbs and yeah. B vitamins and magnesium, but especially some of the, your beautiful adaptogen herbs, or I would move them to, you know, some of the ginsengs or rhodiola or codnopsis and, you know, things that are going to nourish the adrenals at the same time as help your body create some of their stress hormones. So I'm a huge fan of adaptogen herbs. For both men and women. And do you give different adaptogens to men and different ones to women? Oh, I do a little bit. You know, I use a lot more, if we're talking pure ginsengs, I'll definitely use Panax or Korean ginseng more for the men. And I'll use Siberian ginseng more for the women or something like Shisandra and Withania. If we're actually going to talk, I don't know if your listeners talk herbs, but yeah. Yeah, we, but, we do have a bit of a herb chat occasionally. Okay, okay. Yeah. Codonopsis is actually one of the most underrated, but one of my favorite adaptogen herbs because it's also a digestive tonic. And really helps Ooh. the pancreas. You know, it's a great blood sugar regulator. What could what couldn't you want? Blood sugar regulation, adaptogen, digestive tonic. It's all That's everything. Throw out all your other herbs, people. All My, you need is this guy. <laughs> I, I lecture at uni at in naturopathy. I'm always like, if you don't know what to say, if you don't know what herb to give a client, it's a safe bet if you yell out codnopsis, because I will get excited. <laughs> <laughs> and it has almost no contraindications to um, pharmaceuticals. I'm like, yes, codnopsis. That's such a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> codnopsis for everyone. You get codnopsis. You get codnopsis. Yeah, you get codnopsis. <laughs> it's so true. I do. I get, I'm excited now. I'm like, on, my heart rate's gone up five beats talking about codnopsis. Uh, quick, go have a shot. <laughs> I know. I know. It's two stories away. My clinic It's terrible. Oh, Oh God. But I'm a, right. I'm a, yeah, adaptogens. I'm a, I, like, oh my gosh. I, I probably have every adaptogen ever made sitting in my dispensary. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, uh, can you just adaptogen your way out of some of this stuff though? Like what I, I'm, what I'm hearing is there's a lot going on with cortisol. And then if yeah. you're a woman, there's an extra layer to yeah. all of that. And then if you're a driven person training for a goal or, or semi-professional or professional with a team, like it's not like you can go, I'm just going to do Pilates this yeah. week and rest. And, you know, I'm in the second half of my cycle. So, yeah. You know. yeah so, so true. is this where we bring the adaptogens in? Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, there is, when you're working with athletes and, and I'm going to use that word athlete for anybody choosing to do a lot of sport. I hate when Woo, people are I'm like, athlete. athletes Woo. are just the elite athletes. That's crap. I have plenty of people that aren't great sports people that do 10 to 15 hours of training a week. And, and you know, your body builds up to training of that volume. It's not like someone just goes from the couch to 15 hours a week because they would, they would feel horrible, but you know, a lot of, people come and they're doing large volumes of training and it's they're not always going to be doing that they're going to do you know four months of really intense training to get to like i i do iron man triathlon and, and i run marathons so i'm i'm that you know that person that does push it but then i'm also the person who then takes six months off of heavy training and does lighter stuff but i do get clients that just bang out race after race and you know they they exercise you know huge amounts for long periods and and you are sometimes scraping them off the floor and trying to convince them to have a pilates week but mm. i you know maybe as a practitioner sometimes i do band-aid people to get them to that finish line but then we have that discussion about rest and about active recovery rather than complete rest and, and what works them. So I do, I do have to have those difficult conversations, but you know, I once heard another practitioner say anybody that exercises more than five hours a week is addicted to exercise and should stop. No. I was like, I was like, what? what, what five hours? That's to me, that practitioner just hates exercise. And so I won't even say what sex the practitioner was. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave it. Uh, they, 
I'll call it they, them, uh, mm. were, um, you know, I was like, that's just their opinion and they don't like it. Like, it's just ridiculous. You know, the body's made to move and exercise. So it's about finding that medium of a, what works. But yeah, I'm definitely pouring stuff into some people who are buckets with holes in the bottom. Definitely. I'm a definite band-aider at times, but then you have the hard chat. Yeah. I do the same with a lot of my burnt out women who, you know, you have to get them through something so that they have the space to stop on the other side. But like getting them through something sometimes is the non-negotiable. Yeah. And, you know, and they're going to appreciate that you support them in that place where they are rather than going, no, I'm going to give you a whole naturopathic overhaul and do this and this and this. And they'd be like, that's bullshit, Kira. I'm not coming back. <laughs> well, yeah, imagine you know? if you sat them down and went, listen, you're doing eight hours of exercise a week. You are clearly addicted. You need to stop and get help. I know. Mm. I died when I heard that. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. So, oh, God. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's, it's also, it's exercise. Exercise, like I do know that there's such a thing as exercise addiction, like we're all aware, but but also it's you know, it's not cocaine, people. Like just let's take a breath for a minute. And I think a little bit more than five hours a week is totally fine. And it decreases your chance of most cancers by 50%. It decreases your chance of diabetes, of heart disease, of obesity. Like there is nothing, it's antidepressant. It, you know, mm. makes you feel great. It's like, it is the best drug on the planet exercise if you can find the time and the space to do it well. So yeah, yeah with women, one of the, I guess with all clients, but especially women in my, you know, really exhausted, adrenally stressed out women, it's really about teaching them to eat. And this is men too, but teaching them to eat better around their trainings so they're not as depleted. And one of my biggest things is getting women to eat before exercise because we get so obsessed with faster training and then they do every session faster training and then they never feel great exercising and they forget how good they can feel exercising if they just eat something little. Like we're talking, have a date before exercise, have one piece of toast, have an apple or half a banana, something little that's easy to digest. And then you end up training you feel twice as good. You train twice as hard because you gave yourself a little bit of fuel and, you know, Mm. eating before training will help keep cortisol from going too high. You know, how long before training? Because the question will get asked exactly how long before training, you know, (laughs) within the 30 minutes before you train, like it's a tiny little snack. You're not going to feel it in your stomach. And those people are like, that are like, Oh, I feel so sick if I eat before training. You know, I feel nauseous you actually have to train your digestive system and your body to be used to it. So start really small. You could start with a few sips of a green juice if you're too worried or seriously, there's, you know, one date is like, you can't feel that in your digestive system. You just can't. Um, I'm going to start doing this. Like, seriously, it's so weird. Like, there's there's your instinct and intuition and then the brain kicks in and goes looking for research and, like, a few years ago when I used to like um, go surfing in the morning a lot. Gosh. So um, my friend Haley used to live near me and we used to get in the car a couple of mornings a week, drive down and go for very, very early surf. And I used to be like, I can't face surfing unless I've had half a banana, yeah. right? So every morning, and it would take 15 minutes to drive to the surf. So in that 15 drive. minutes yeah. I would smash half a banana and I'd leave the other half in the car for when I got out of the surf because that would get me to the coffee place. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, like my instinct was saying, here, yeah. have half banana and then you start reading about the fasted training and the not, don't eat and the blah, 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 and then I'd be like, okay, so for the last couple of years I've been going and doing workouts in the mornings when I do that. I haven't eaten anything because that's what I read. But you know what? Somewhere deep in my memory I'm thinking I used to know to do this instinctively and it used to, it wasn't a whole banana, it was just like have half a banana. That's going to get you through and you don't feel spewy when you're paddling on the board because it's only half a banana. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's amazing. I remember because I went through it. I mean, I read all the research and I know what fasted training does and doesn't do. And, you know, I'm one of these people who won't 
talk about anything unless I've trialed it myself. So, you know, I had mm-hmm. to do ketogenic diet for a couple of months at one point because I couldn't lecture on it if I didn't understand what it felt like. I'm, I'm always doing some weird, crazy, I'm, you name it, I've tried it. Um, and I got in the habit at one point quite a few years ago of faster training. And then I remember going, you know what, you know, there's some researchers on women that are really talking about women needing to have something before every training session. And oh my God, I felt so much better, just unbelievably better. If you're really aware of your body, you know, you notice the difference just in one run. And who doesn't love eating a handful of grapes or a date or a banana? You know, those are the yummy foods anyway. Mm. So, you know, exercise is always an excuse to get to eat more yummy food. That's my right. <laughs> Come on, let's be real. I mean, I know that sounds a little bit negative. I'm not saying I, I exercise as punishment for what I eat. That's definitely not my philosophy. But, you know, the more you exercise, the more you get to eat, which is a joy. You know, mm. I and you don't love to overthink it. No. <laughs> No. And you can stop stressing about what you're eating when you actually do good amounts of exercise. And it's, it's a beautiful, you know, it's a give and take and it's how our bodies are made to be doing it. You know, Mm. we're not made to be sitting in front of a desk all day on zoom calls, are we? No, we are not. (laughs) You know, as much as we love doing that. No, we're not. I know. know. We're not. Yeah. Mm. And it's so, you know, sports nutrition and when you learn the rules of it, and even the rules of regular nutrition, they're so simple and they're so basic when we peel it back to what really works. But we try to get all technical with it and we try to cheat with extra supplements or pre-workouts or we, we're always looking, you know, I'm, oh, I'm going to say this. I dislike the word biohack. There, I've said it. <laughs> I've admitted it. This is a confession. I dislike that word because it's biology hacking. So you are trying to cheat. I know it's not really cheating, but you are trying to trick your body into optimum health. You're trying to hack your way. You're trying to shortcut your way to better health. That's actually what that term means, right? Yeah. Why is it not my, ready? Bioenhance. I want to change it. Why are we not bioenhancing rather than hacking? And that's my female spin. (laughs) on what is a very male term. I find the term biohacking very masculine. Not that there's anything Mm. wrong with that. And we don't have to put genders onto health, but no. And the three, the three men who are listening to this podcast every week. Yeah. Sorry, boys. (laughs) You can keep using that word. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense if we think of all the big, you know, the big bloggers and and writers on biohacking, it's always it's always men. It's such a, it's such a masculine word. Whereas I think we need to be really looking at how do we enhance our body rather than shortcut it? That's my thing. Yeah. You're so right. And I, I live in Byron, as you know, which is a little oh, bit of a hotbed of the biohacking absolutely. community. And it is, it's like faster, stronger, more focused, more productive, more, more, more bigger, larger, this, that, you know, and yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm honestly with you. Like when you when you think of that term biohack and the way that it's it, the way it's being used now is probably probably not the way it was in, intended yeah. to be used early on. But yeah, you're right. It's like for me, it's like are we still looking for shortcuts? Because if you're looking for a shortcut, are you really working with what your body needs? Yeah. That's why I'm changing bioenhance. I, like I know it. it doesn't flow as well. It's not as short and hip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds a bit more fluffy, but we're going to go does. with it. I couldn't think of any other word. If you got a better word, let's go. <laughs> we no, can start a new it. trend. <laughs> I think it's perfect. But, yeah, you're, you're so right because, like, we're, yeah. we're so busy looking for a, short, a shorter way to achieve our goals or the a faster thing. way the next big thing that we at, we might just be ignoring simply what's under our nose, which is eat half a banana. I know. Or, you know, sleep enough or mm. sit down and properly eat a meal or move your body. Like if we were to bioenhance and we go, you know, we do slow, smart, not that biohacking isn't smart, but, you know, we know what our body needs. I mean, it goes back to naturopathic principles, right? And mm. You need sunshine, you need air, you need good water, you need good food, you need, you know, um, 
connection with other people. You, I'm missing something. Exercise. I forgot about exercise. You know, those, <laughs> you know, there's we call it nature's seven healers. Those basic tenets get you so far. You know, everything else is like oh, speaking in all these analogies. But you know, we got to keep baking our cupcakes and not worry so much about the icing or the frosting or whatever I'm supposed to call that. Right? We get yeah. so focused on the icing. Icing? Is that what I'm supposed to be saying? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yes. Okay. My, my Canadian it's been American so long since out. I've eaten a cupcake. <laughs> I know, but it's like we it's get so free. focused on that top bit that we forget to bake a good cake, right? And it's mm. the cake that counts, not, you know, the frosting's yummy, but it doesn't last as long. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I had visions of that Seinfeld episode where uh, all the people want to eat is the muffin tops. They don't want to eat the rest of the muffins, so they're throwing out all the stumps. Oh yes, and, um, I forgot ended, about that. Ended in disaster. It did. It did. Yeah. 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 It's, it's we just we're we're hard on ourselves, and it's it's simpler than we think. Yeah, it really is. Half a banana and some sleep. Are you kidding? How are we going to market that? And you get to have your carbs after training. Woohoo! <laughs> See, this is awesome. I'm seriously. This is this is going to change everything. I'm now going to go and eat a little bit just a little bit before I train in the mornings and I'm going to see whether especially on the cardio days yeah and I'm going to see what that does yep and then you're going to eat a meal within 30 minutes of finishing training (sighs) in a three to one ratio of carbs to protein oh my lord I'm so excited I get to eat food I know (laughs) and you will feel you know when you don't eat after training you know it's not just the issue with glycogen your body really wanted food. And the longer you go from the time you train to the time you eat, if it's too long, again, I'm not going to sound very technical here, but your brain kind of gets pissed off and then it really turns up your hunger because it didn't get anything. It turns up your hunger for the wrong foods and you end up being exhausted and trying to catch up all day to make yourself feel better. If you eat properly after training, you have so much more energy for the rest of the day. It's ama- It's like cheating, but you're not cheating. You're actually just eating. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Such a difference. Yes. <gasps> Yay. <laughs> all right, my love. Um, awesome. You've got loads of amazing stuff online so i think this is a good time to just can you just tell us about your online courses and offerings and because there's there's things on there for people just starting out there's things on there for athlete athletes and then there's things on there for practitioners as well I know. It's like a switch. I should actually turn it into different sections soon, I think. I'll have to yeah, like that. a little button that you hit, like yeah. where I'm are you at? I'm a practitioner. <laughs> I'm yes. an athlete. Um, <laughs> I'm all of those, not the athlete. athlete yeah. Though. <laughs> yeah. So I have, so my website's just kirasutherland.com.au and I have some ebooks that are, oh my gosh. So I have ebooks up to like four week and seven week courses which you can actually do as fast as you want you don't it's 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 not just seven weeks um to teach people around I have a like a four week super healthy eating get back to basics kind of boot camp eating kind of it's a little bit weight loss that's called basics that's four weeks for the average person wanting to learn how to eat super healthy and it's got a bit of sports nutrition in there or I have a seven week fueling for fitness, seven weeks program to learn everything about sports nutrition and how to fuel yourself for sport and going to the gym. And you don't have to be an elite athlete for that one. Um, I do have other programs or eBooks for endurance athletes because that's really my jam. And I work with a lot of triathletes and runners and ultra runners. Um, And so that's, that's the stuff I really have for general public it kind of a lot of it I've designed to replace coming to see me because a lot of that info is just so easy to learn by yourself I have mentoring for practitioners and sports nutrition what else do I have I can't even think of what I have there's a whole plethora of stuff (laughs) I have lots of free downloads um um oh my gosh I can't even think of what else is there but yeah and you're on Facebook and Insta as well, aren't you? Yep, I'm on both. Yep. And under both, I am, my business name is Uber Health, U-B-E-R-H-E-A-L-T-H, one word. And that has been, I'm just going to 
state this. That has been my business name for 22 years, long before, <laughs> long before Uber. So yeah, I'm just going to make that statement. It was, a cool word. it was a cold word 20 years ago when I made it up. <laughs> I didn't make up the word Uber, but I made up the word Uber health. I just wanted nice. something that wasn't too fluffy, right? Yeah. Athletes could handle it, right? Yeah. 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 I love so it. come find me on social media. I'm, I'm pretty active. I, I yeah, post lots of stuff. My website has so many blogs where you can learn tons of sports nutrition info too. The blogs aren't, are, are usually packed full of info because yeah, I'm an overgiver. Yeah. I love it. That's why we love you overgiver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for overgiving today with the time that you've spent with oh, us. Uh, it's good to chat to you. I know. I, can, I still can't believe I get to just have a nerdy cup of tea with my friends and call it work. It I is know. the best job ever. I know. It will <laughs> be good. It is good. I love doing it. Love doing yeah. it. So thank you for having me on. Thank you so much, Kira. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness, and complex cases, to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.